Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Great Scott Podcast. This is Michael Scott, and with me today is author Dwayne Epstein. Hello, Dwayne. How are you? I'm very well, Mike. Thank you. How are you doing? I'm doing good, uh, other than the fact it's pretty hot here in Kansas City. Hopefully, it's a little bit cooler where you are. Um, well, I don't know how hot it is in Kansas City, but it is hot in California. Luckily, I live by the beach, so it's not as bad for us. Oh, lucky you. Yep. <laughs> so uh, so my first question is, um, what got you into writing? What got me into writing? Well, I can tell you, um, it's one of those kind of situations where I wasn't aware that I had any writing ability per se, so it wasn't so much a light bulb that went off as a whack in the back of the head with a two-by-four that made me realize I had some ability. Um, basically, when I was in school, I wasn't the greatest student, but if there was a test with an essay question, then I could really lay it on thick, and I always got a better grade. Uh, so eventually, over time, I started pursuing writing professionally just on a not so much a lark as it was a way to pay bills and it it's been a long steady journey and i've been doing it for oh gosh since the i guess the late 1980s maybe yeah off and on i've done other things as well but that's what got me into writing and my love of film ever since early childhood helped so so what is your favorite movie since, since we're on that what's my favorite movie Oh, gosh, that's like asking a parent, what's, who's your favorite child? I mean, I just have so many. Um, not lately, unfortunately. Um, I'm, I'm not one of those kind of prudes who has any problem with necessarily graphic violence or, or, or nudity or vulgar language or anything like that. It's just that the current crop of films is just all, you know, theme parks. <laughs> They're not really movies, in my opinion. The more popular ones, anyway. Um, comic book adaptations and what have you. And I love comic books. I grew up with comic books as well. It's just I'm not a fan of seeing it on the big screen. I love, my favorite films have been. I've got favorite films in every decade. Um, the, you know, the, the the great Warner Brothers films of the 1930s, uh, the MGM musicals of the 40s, the the lush Technicolor films of the 50s. But I would venture a guess my favorite decade of filmmaking, at least in America, anyway is the 60s and 70s, uh, mainly because the studio system didn't exist anymore, the production code had changed dramatically, and so filmmakers were allowed to experiment in a way they had never done before. And they were just remarkable films, just incredible. Were, most of my favorites were in that period, especially the early 70s. The early 70s? Who? Who were some of your uh, favorite actors? Though, um, actors well, and, you know, it's funny because there was a whole new current crop. Every generation has a, a new group of actors. But in the 70s, the rules had changed in terms of being, you know, not having to be matinee idol, good-looking like Tyrone Power or Flynn Cary Grant. Nothing wrong with that. But um, in the 70s, more naturalistic and realistic actors and stories resulted in you know, guys like Jack Nicholson, uh, Justin Hoffman, Al Pacino, Robert De Niro, that whole group. But also, too, the post-war actors that were really big in, in, well, after the war, when they first established themselves, were middle-aged in the 70s, and they were making some incredible films, probably some of the best films of their life in the 70s, such as uh, William Holden, Jack Lemmon, Burt Lancaster, Marlon Brando, 
and of course, Lee Marvin. And of course, Lee Marvin, absolutely. So, um, so now, now that you mentioned Lee Marvin, uh, and before I, I ask you about that, uh, let me first off say congratulations on the success of, of the book that you're having, uh, and just the overall success, uh, and just the overall success uh, that you're having. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, it took me a long time to get it to uh, the public, for it to finally get published, but once it did, it was a good part of the success I was hoping it would be. Um, I had been told by publisher, different publishers for a long time that they liked what I did, but they just don't see a market for a book on Lee Marvin. He's been dead too long. People forgot him, what have you. And what's interesting is the publisher, a gentleman named Tim Schaffner of Schaffner Press, he didn't quite see it that way, luckily, and he went ahead and published the book. And many of the other publishers that had turned me down actually said to him personally, they, they wish we would have published that book. Did. And so, when he told um, me that, I said, so well, what, they had their chance. What made you choose to, to write about it. Lee uh, himself? Uh, were you a great admirer of him growing up? Or uh, himself, uh, were you a great admirer of him growing up? Or um, he was he was a personal favorite. Yeah, he wasn't the personal favorite. Like I said, um, in in different periods of filmmaking, I had different favorites. My all time favorite growing up was probably Steve McQueen, um, but others included. Uh, yeah, I'm a huge Steve McQueen fan. Others included uh, James Cagney, uh, Burt Lancaster, huge Burt Lancaster fan. Um, but the thing about Marvin was that nobody had ever really written a book about him. Nothing definitive, anyway. And I had spoken with an, a friend of mine who was also a biographer, and we discussed uh, different possibilities. And when we realized that there had never been a book on Marvin, that's when I started to consider it. And um, the earliest research I did, just kind of tipping my toe in the water, well, I just found more intriguing. I mean, there were all the obvious things about Marvin that was known at the time. Um, being a Marine, a combat veteran, uh, the Palamoni suit, winning the Oscar for Cat Ballou, um, and those other things as well. I mean, a lot of things about him. But the more research I did, the more I realized that as much as he was a product of his time and his generation, being a World War II veteran, uh, growing up during the Depression and what have you, there was a lot about him that was not quite typical of his, of his generation. And the more I found that out, the more I liked it the more intrigued I became. Okay, so uh, so basically, what, what was your favorite and least favorite part about writing writing the book about Marvin? Um, well, when I was a kid, my favorite Lee Marvin movie was probably The Dirty Dozen. Probably still is as well. But, you know, the interesting thing about Marvin was that there was, because he had such a, um, a, a kind of itinerant career in that it went through different stages, he had you know, great films to watch in every one of those stages, such as like in the 50s when he wasn't uh, name above the title star, he was in some of the best films of the decade, such as uh, Bad Day at Black Rock, uh, The Big Heat. Um, gosh, off the top of my head, I'm trying to remember. Uh, this weird little film he did called uh, Shack Out on 101. It's such a strange film, but I love it because it's, it's, it's one of those movies that's so bad it's good, and he's a lot of fun to watch in it. And then there was, you know, the early 60s when he was a powerful and, and good second lead, like in uh, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, a uh, movie did called the... Yeah, that's, that was a good that's film. one of his best performances. I know people who have told me that that's their favorite Lee Marvin yeah. film, even though he's not the star of the film. Uh, the Killers, uh, Donovan's Reef, it was a lot of fun, him and John Wayne. 
Um, but then once he established himself after winning the Oscar for Capaloo, The Dirty Dozen, of course, um, Emperor of the North, uh, a movie called The Professionals with him and Burt Lancaster. These are all great films. Highly, highly recommend uh, my listeners to check out those those movies that he just mentioned. Um, they they are really, really good films of of the old time. Uh, and basically, uh, I wish that, that we would go back to those to those films that um, that basically, like you were saying, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. Um, I wish that that movies were made like like that again today. But uh, like you say, I mean, um, within like. And arguably, in just my opinion, within the last 10 years, um, maybe even 20, that the movies have started to change in a whole totally different direction, and that would go along with television as well. So I would completely agree with you when, when you say um, the old actors are, um, I won't say much better, but they just knew how to make a movie, I guess I would say. Yeah, you know, part of that is that they brought their history that we are aware of with them to the roles they played. You know what I mean? Like when, um, a real good example, um, Paul Newman in the movie The Verdict, yeah. um, probably his best performance. In playing that character, he brought his entire film history with him, having played guys like uh, the lawyer, the young lawyer in the movie The Young Philadelphians, and also Eddie Felsen in The Hustler, that they were... You know, that guy, when he was younger, was a hustler. He was a comer. He was brash and ready to take on the world. But things happened in his life that ruined that. So by the time you see that same kind of guy in The Verdict, he it's much darker. He's older. He's broken. He's looking at the edge of the abyss. And we know that. Never mind the story and the way he plays the character. That all comes from having seen him for decades and watching him age into this guy. And that's just one example. There are a lot of examples like that of other actors. And uh, Marvin, Marvin did that as well. There was a lot of what he had done previously. I mean, when you see him on screen, once he was established, and he had that great mane of silver hair and that deep, deep, you know, incredible voice and the craggy face, we know this guy had been around the block a few times when we get dropped into whatever the story is that we're watching. And we know that from his previous films as well. Absolutely. I would agree. And uh, so did you ever get, uh, get to meet Lee Marvin? No, unfortunately I didn't. Um, he passed in 1987, and I started the book in 1994. However, I was lucky enough at the time that I started the project to come in contact with some people that were, you know, lifelong associations of his, such as, the uh, fact that I was the only person to ever get an interview with his older brother. Um, his brother passed away, I believe, in 1999, but um, he was a revelation. Nobody ever interviewed him before, and I spent about a month with him in the Marvin family home in uh, Woodstock, New York. And that was incredible. Um, I interviewed his son, Lee Marvin's son, who had never been interviewed before, his first wife, um, his career-long agent. That's another interesting uh, anachronism about Lee Marvin was that he's one of those few actors that had the same agent from the day he came to Hollywood until the day he died. And his name was Meyer Mishkin, who's also since passed, and I spent a weekend with him and telling me stuff he had never told anybody, things like that. And it's all in the book. It's all definitely in the book. And um, so Lee Marvin also had a, uh, a great family history. Uh, he basically had family that, that was doing exploring. And then um, also with, uh, um, I think it was Jacques Cartier or something that. 
But he was doing. Yeah, that. that's another uh, great revelation that I discovered in my research that I really don't want to give away too much because I'd rather have people read it oh, and find sure, out. Sure. But I discovered that he had a great uncle, uh, Ross Marvin, who was a a very close aide to Admiral Peary in his exploration to discover the South Pole. And what happened to him really amazed me. And it turns out Lee Marvin didn't even know because I checked with his brother about this. And Robert Marvin told me if I didn't know, Lee didn't know. (laughs) (laughs) So it was interesting. Yeah, yeah. It was the book from from cover to cover is just an interesting read, folks. Uh, Definitely, definitely pick it up. So, uh, and Lee, Lee Marvin's not, not the only book that you've uh, ever written on. Uh, you've also written other books as well. Uh, yeah, as I said earlier, I, you know, I dabbled in it back and forth for years, and one of the things I wound up being able to do was I came in contact with a publisher that was doing um, young adult biographies in a series called People in the News, and writing for young adults is deceptively hard. It sounds easy. They're not... It's not about simple sentences. It's about intriguing the reader as it would be for an adult. And writing those biographies taught me more than any uh, college degree I could have gotten in writing biographies because I discovered it's not just he was born blah blah he did blah blah he died blah blah Each chapter had to encompass a theme within that person's life at a given time. And I utilized that to a great extent in writing Lee Marvin Point Blank. And the people I wrote about for um, the people in the new series. It was a pretty diverse uh, subject matter. Politicians, comedians, um, actors. I can tell you, I did two on Hillary Clinton. Uh, I did one on Denzel Washington, Adam Sandler, Will Ferrell, Hillary Swank, Nancy Pelosi. And uh, I'm one of those kind of people that I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued by the lives of individuals whose work I find fascinating. It's what a friend of mine calls discovering how the rabbit came out of the hat. I, I'm fascinated by those stories. How do you go about uh, choosing the people that you choose to write about? Well, <laughs> for the people in the news series, it kind of worked like this. Um, I was offered three people because the first book I did was Adam Sandler. And whenever anybody asks me and I tell them, they'll always go, Adam Sandler? Ew, why would you want to write about him? Well, it worked like this. They, they gave me a choice of either Eminem, Adam Sandler, Good or George Bush. So I chose Adam Sandler out of that group. <laughs> and I'm kind of glad I did. I, I was dragged kind of kicking and screaming to that project at first. But then I discovered at the time, I was lucky, the timing of it, he had just done a film called Punch Drunk Love, which I highly recommend to anybody and everybody. It's an amazing film and a great performance by him. That is very atypical. So uh, basically, so you wrote about Adam Sandler and uh, and and all these other guys. Uh, so was being a author uh, your first choice uh, for a career in life, or did you have other other aspirations as well? Oh well, for a while, believe it or not, I dabbled in stand-up comedy back in the eighties. Um, it was just uh, it went okay. It, it had its ups and downs, and I probably would have achieved even greater success if I pursued it longer, but it's extremely hard to, as you would imagine, to have any kind of success in a field like that. You've got to work on it day and night. There's a great book, by the way, that was written about how difficult it is in better ways than any kind of uh, read by the numbers. Uh, uh, Steve Martin's autobiography called Born Standing Up, 
I'm, I'm not even that big of a fan of Steve Martin, but it's a great read and it's a great book about what you have to do to succeed in stand in stand up comedy. And by the way, with the period he was writing about isn't even the same anymore. He was writing about it in the seventies and eighties. So I imagine there's even more to it than that. But being in the digital age that we are now, um, I can't imagine what it's like Steve Martin talks about how it took him 14 years to get to where he's at today. And, um, also, uh, I was talking, or yeah, so I was talking to a friend of mine, and um, basically uh, Jay Leno, uh, he he would perform every yep. single day, and then go to classes, uh, absolutely tired from performing the the day before, and sleep during class, and then perform again later on that night. <laughs> yeah, right. That's, and you know, and you got to think of it in terms of somebody. Never mind the work itself and trying to cobble together an act and, and, and audiences' reactions and what have you, but it doesn't matter if the mood you're in. You could have just learned that, you know, the worst news in the world about a loved one or something, and you can't take that day off, and you've got to be funny. Oh, and no. That's not no, an easy no, thing to do. Um, so, I mean, I'm oversimplifying the difficulties of it, but you get the gist of what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, so what did your uh, parents think about all this uh, when you said, uh, Mom, Dad, I want to go into the show business, did they encourage you or, or discourage you? Uh, well, yes and no. I mean, I have very um, pragmatic parents. Um, I was raised the son of a truck driver. My father was a truck driver, proudly, by the way. My mother was a housemaker, homemaker. Um, and my mother's goal was that I get an education no matter what, and I'd be a professional. When I told her of my love of movies and I wanted to do this, that, or the other, she always said the same thing. Do whatever you want, just get a college education. Um, and I took and, and dropped classes in college for quite a while while doing other things. I worked as a waiter. I, uh, you know, I pursued several different things. Um, I'm, you know, she may have been right in the long run, and I do regret not finishing college, but... The I think I think the uh, the balance sheet is still in my favor because I've had some wonderful adventures in my life doing uh, pursuing different things. Um, so I'm not I'm not uh, feeling guilty or have any regrets on that level. And as far as my writing goes, my parents were encouraging, but they weren't very. What's the word I'm looking for? They didn't think I stood a very good chance in such a competitive field. And unfortunately. They never really did live long enough to see the Lee Marvin book come out, even though they were alive when I was working on it. My father had Alzheimer's, and my mother had heart disease. And mm. I had been working on the project off and on, including de- helping them deal with their um, health issues and, and what have you. So they passed before the book got published. But they did know of it, and they thought that it would be a great idea if I could ever get a publisher. <laughs> so, uh, so basically... Um... What advice would you uh, give to someone who uh, would want to do what you want to do, like authoring or, um, or maybe even the, the stand-up comedy uh, stuff? Um, I, you know, I really can't offer any advice in terms of comedy because I'm so far removed from it now. Oh, okay. I wouldn't know where to start. But as far as writing goes, the older I get, and I'm in my 50s now, I will tell you, I used to be one of those kind of people that I would give you my advice and my opinion whether you ask for it or not. But as I get older, I realize, you know, you can't really do that until you know the person better or know their situation and try to be as, as what's the word I'm looking for? Um, positive in the, in, in the advice you're giving them, but realistic at the same time, the single best thing I could tell anybody is never give up on your dreams. If you really believe in it, because that's, that's how it worked for me. It was not easy. 
And most importantly, you got to love what you do. If you, this is a really hard profession, and if you don't have a love for it, it's it's utter torture and and punishment. If you believe, if you love what you do, you believe in what you do, and if you believe in what you do, it's going to show. Uh, so basically. Okay, so uh, so I was uh, listening to uh, one one performer because uh, they had asked him for advice, and I forget who who it was, uh, but uh, I thought it was really good advice. And so basically, um, he said, the second that you think that your craft is work, then it's probably not going to be for you. Uh, then maybe it's time. time. That's yeah, I like that. That's a very good point. And yet, on the flip side of that coin. Uh, being being the fan of, uh, of of different individuals and creative entities that I am, uh, there's always the exception to that rule, as there is to anything. I, one of the people I've always been a fan of was James Cagney, and all of his life, Cagney never liked what he did. It was just a job to him. He you know he he, he appreciated the musical numbers and and what he got to dance on film as rare as it was because he did enjoy that. But as an actor and being in front of the camera, he hated it. He was not. Um, it was. It was. It was kind of surprising to me. I mean, there are people that do what they do and don't necessarily like it, but they're very, very good at it. It's very strange. One of my favorite quotes about writing was something Dorothy Parker once said when she was asked, "Do you enjoy writing?" and she said, "No, but I enjoy having written." And that's the way I feel about it. I don't always like the actual chore of writing itself, and other than some clunkers I've come across. Basically, I, I enjoy seeing what I had written previously. Some stuff I've written before kind of makes me wince because I was starting out and what have you. Some stuff I'll read again and go, eh, How long that's not so bad. I like the that. whole Lee Marvin book. Well, the actual physical act of writing it took me about six months to a year, but that really isn't a fair assessment because there was a lot of research involved that was close to 20 years. And even people who didn't necessarily give the book a rave have said the thing that most impressed them was the amount of research that went into it. And so in that sense, I think I succeeded. Um, but, yeah, the research, that, that probably took longer. Um, the writing, it's interesting about the writing. I'll give you a real quick example of how sometimes you can't force what you want to say. You've got to let it write itself. One of the most important chapters in the book was the time Marvin spent in the war because it, it – um, it kind of set the path for the rest of his life because of what he experienced in the war. He was a, he was a Marine veteran in the Pacific during World War II, and he was wounded on the island of Saipan, and he made 21 landings with the Marines. Now, see, that's a really important, not just important part of his life, but an important part of his book, of the book. And, you know, I'm not Ernie Pyle or Ernest Hemingway, and I've never experienced uh, combat, let alone been in the service. And I, I was very trepidatious about writing that chapter, and I kept putting it off as long as possible. And my and my publisher was kind of like tapping his watch, going, you know, the clock is ticking here. You got to turn this in. And then I had a kind of a revelation. Well, I was trying to force myself to write that chapter. In doing the research, I had gotten a lot of letters Lee had written home. I got them from his brother when I was staying with him, and I put them in chronological order in the in an attempt to kind of write the chronology of Lee's time in the service, and in doing that, I got another whack in the back of the head, which was, he wrote them pretty much, he wrote his family and friends several times a week, and by putting them in chronological order, I realized, I don't have to write this chapter, 
Lee Marvin can write it. And what I did was I transcribed the article, uh, the letters he wrote. Not an easy task, by the way, because his penmanship was horrific, and and he didn't spell words very well. And oftentimes he was in a combat situation, so they could. It was like reading hieroglyphics. But over time, I was able to get it all down, put it in order, kind of uh, um, edit it for clarity, and put in some linking paragraphs of my own. And for the most part. That's Lee Marvin's uh, words in that chapter, and I think it turned out pretty well because I can't write like that, and his own words in the first person can can tell the reader so much more than I ever could. Absolutely. I, I totally agree. I mean, I do like it when, when the writer himself writes writes for you pretty much. Yeah, you know, writing um, battle sequences or anything like that that a writer takes upon themselves, like I said, unless you're Ernie Pyle, um, it comes off as phony. It's just as bad as you know those rip bodice Harlequin romance, romantic uh, uh, segues in those books. But it's on the other side. I mean, men love action, women love romance, and unless it's done from firsthand experience or done very believably, as Lee Marvin wrote it himself, it just makes it. You know, it turns off a reader. At least you know it does for me anyway. That was something I was very cognizant of in writing the whole book, is that being a lover of biographies, especially film biographies, I've read so many of them. I knew what I liked and I knew what I didn't like. And as far as I'm concerned, any books I've read about actors or directors or screenwriters, what have you, that focus on how much something costs or the production budget or the studio executives, that kind of thing, turns me off immediately. I don't really care. If I wanted to read that, I'd read a bank statement. Um, I'm interested in the creative aspect. How did they come up with the idea to do this in a given scene? What made a film sequence memorable? What did the actor contribute? What did the director contribute? Because film is such a collaborative art, it's interesting to find out who did what and why. It's one of those kind of stories that automatically gets you on Lee Marvin's side. Because people, especially Americans, America has a, a, great, a great tradition of liking the underdog and, and sticking pins in the balloons of pompous people. And, you know, and I've heard both about Lee Strasberg. I've heard, read, read both good and bad things about him. Um, and that was an example of Strasberg having an ego that didn't want to be um, brought down. And Marvin, Marvin went out of his way to do so. And he didn't just do it for the sake of doing it. He, he stood his ground, as, in, as, the, as the point is made in the anecdote, in that he had done a monologue from the Ernest Hemingway story, The Snows of Kilimanjaro, about a man dying of gangrene. And when the scene was over, in front of the other students, because uh, Marvin was auditing the class uh, at the actor's studio, Strasberg proceeded to dress him down as he as was his normal way of doing things, and everybody just accepted that. Well, Marvin didn't. In, Marvin, in, in Marvin's mind, the emperor had no clothes. And because he pointed out, Strasberg pointed out that the scene didn't work well because he didn't see the pain that Marvin's character was suffering from in gangrene. And Marvin, Marvin set him straight. He said, the character's in the final stages of gangrene, and in the final stages of gangrene, there is no pain. And he he disagreed. Or, uh, excuse me. Strasburg disagreed with him, and Marvin called him out and said, "Look, I was I was in the Pacific during World War II. I saw a lot of gangrene. And what the hell do you know about it?" And it you know, it's one of those kind of great stories where the, the truth wins out over pomposity. 
There you go. So uh, pretty much, um, I think that that it's okay to to announce this. Um, you're so you're writing another book as well. Indeed, I am. Um, thank you for saying that because I'm working on it right now. I'm getting a lot of great stuff. Um, doing a biography on Lee Marvin's often uh, seen sidekick Ooh. Charles Bronson, and um, it was one of those kind of things. I just kind of. It's, it'll be published by the same publisher, by the way, Schaffner Press. Tim Schaffner and I think a lot of, of the same way when it comes to these kind of things. And I've been a fan of Bronson for a long time. He's not a great actor. I'll be the first to admit that. But he had a presence, and some of his films are in dire need of rediscovery. And he was a, a, a you know, what I was saying before about actors who came with baggage of their own from the post-war years into the 70s. You know, Bronson was an amazing enigma that way in that he reached superstardom status in his 50s, which is so unlikely. You know, with Bronson, I mean, excuse me, with Marvin, he was in his 40s in the, six, in the 1960s when he made it big, but Bronson, it took even longer. In spite of the fact that he had been around, Lee Marvin and Charles Bronson made their first films together. They played extras in a Gary Cooper service comedy called You're in the Navy Now. And Bronson just kept plugging along for like another 15, 20 years before so he you're, finally uh, So you sound like a, a movie encyclopedia. Oh, well, well, as I like to tell people, before before the Internet, I was the guy people would call, call up at 2 o'clock in the morning saying, <laughs> hey, Dwayne, I'm watching this movie, and there's this guy, he's had a hat, and he's got a brother. <laughs> What movie is this? <laughs> I was that guy. <laughs> well, I'm glad that that that, uh, that that we were able to do it, and um, good luck on the new book. Oh, it's been it's been my pleasure, Mike. Thank you. Any chance I get to talk about Lee Marvin or movies or anything of that nature is always always a welcome respite.